Well, I was asked uh, this morning to begin with to, to announce the soccer score from Saturday. Did you all hear about that? The Masters College 7, Redlands 0. That, that is a first-class blowout in soccer, and uh, that's great. We congratulate the young men on our soccer team, and uh, I know that was a great victory for you guys. Well, there's so many wonderful things happening around the college, it's hard to stay up with all of them, and uh, it's always a joy for me, even if I can only be here some weeks on Monday, just to get plugged in. We have a prayer meeting on Monday morning when we kind of dig into the things that are going on, and it's wonderfully refreshing to hear all that the Lord is doing. Uh, I understand you even have water in the swimming pool. Is that right? <laughs> and some furniture up there, and then I understand the water is cold and dirty. Is that correct? No? Oh, that's good. All right. Well, we're working with all of those kind of things, and we're really excited about what's happening. I want to share with you uh, in our continuing study of our purpose statement this morning, and um, Russ Moore has kind of broken that purpose statement down into some basic elements. And um, you'll remember that we are all here because the Master's College exists for the purpose of training people for excellence in service to Him. To Him. And that's what we want to talk about today. The fact that all that we do and all that we are is directed to Him. I would like you to open your Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, if you will. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And there's a very interesting passage here that kind of gives us a perspective that I want to share with you. I have shared some of these things last year, but Russ felt it was important for the new students to kind of plug in on all of this as well. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning in verse... 24, we read this, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in his presence, strength and gladness are in his place. Give unto the Lord, you kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the, the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now the sum of all of that, and what I want you to grab onto, the sum of all of that is to glorify God. To reduce that to a New Testament passage would be to take us to 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says... Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all what? To the glory of God. The bottom line in Christian living is to glorify God. The old catechism said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The reason you exist is to glorify God. The reason everything exists is to glorify God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 43.10 says, The beast of the field shall give me glory or honor. Everything God made, Colossians 1 says, is made by him and for him. So everything created is created to give God glory. The heavens declare his glory by showing his manifest power and wisdom. The creation on the earth does the very same thing. 
The angels are in his presence all the time, giving him glory and honor and praise. Man was created to radiate the glory of God, to demonstrate the glory of God. But man is a rebel. And man, in his fallenness, refuses to do the one thing he was made to do, and that is to glorify God. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1, and let me show you that. Romans chapter 1. It says in verse 21, a very familiar passage, When they knew God, that is, man knows there is a God, he knows about God from creation and from conscience, Man is aware that God exists, but when they knew God, it says they glorified him not as God. Now, basically, there is the indictment of the whole human race which sends them to hell, a refusal to glorify God, a refusal to give him honor and praise and glory. Go back to the Old Testament again, and I want to show you another passage, just kind of building a, your understanding a bit, and that is in the 13th chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 13. If you don't uh, have time to turn to it, listen carefully. Jeremiah 13. Verse 16. Give glory to the Lord your God. Pretty straightforward command. Give glory to the Lord your God. Before he caused darkness, and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains, and when you look for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it gross blackness. What is he saying? Glorify God or else. Glorify God or get ready for judgment. And if you don't listen, he says in verse 17, my soul will weep in secret places for your pride, and mine eye will weep bitterly and run down with tears. The prophet says, I'll cry for you because of the terrible judgment you're going to experience if you don't listen to what I say. Give God glory or suffer the consequences, and I'll cry for you if you have to suffer the consequences. And he also says, my tears will be shed for your pride because the thing that causes men to refuse to give God glory is they're too busy giving the glory to whom? Themselves. So we are called to glorify God. In the Old Testament also, a familiar portion of Scripture to students of Scripture is in Daniel, and I just read it to you briefly, the fourth chapter and the thirtieth verse. It tells a very, very interesting story in this section about a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And he says in verse 30, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and the honor of my majesty? He says, Look what I have done. Isn't this marvelous what I have done? Look at this incredible thing that I have built. And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and you will be driven from men, and you will live like a beast of the field, and you will eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomsoever he will. The same hour the thing was fulfilled, he was driven from men, he ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, his hair was grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He turned into an absolute raving maniac because he sought the glory and refused to give it to God. 
The scripture is very positive about glorifying God, and it's very negative about those who don't. One other portion, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 gives us another insight into this matter of glorifying God and telling us the story of a man named Herod. And it says in verse 20, Herod was highly displeased with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And then down in verse 21, in order to sort of reinforce his power, he decided to proclaim Herod Day, a day when he could exalt himself and everybody would hurrah for Herod. So a set day came, verse 21, Herod came and put on his royal apparel, got all of his kingly duds on, came out, sat on his throne, and made a speech, trying to reinforce his power. And the people gave a shout, and they said, it is the voice of a god and not a man. Isn't he marvelous? He's a deity. Look at him. And he loved it. That's what he wanted. And immediately, an angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Bad choice, Herod. Herod Day was a bummer. He was going to go out and proclaim his own glory. God sent worms, they ate him, and he died. You see, when the, when the word of God says, give God glory or else, it means exactly what it says. Hell will be occupied by people who refuse to do what? Give God glory. Now mark this. It isn't so much that men are condemned by the evil they do as the righteousness they fail to do. It is right to give God glory. It is deadly to refuse to do that. We have been called into this world made for the purpose of glorifying God, but man, Romans 1, I read it to you, refuses to do that. And on that basis alone, he is condemned to eternal hell. It's absolutely vital that we glorify God. We live for that. Now the question is posed, how? How do we glorify God? If that's what we're supposed to do, how do we do it? And that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to give you a little list, and you can write them down, because I think they're the kind of touchstone things that you'll want to go back and look at many times. How do we glorify God? If that's what we're to do, and that's going to determine our eternal destiny, how do we do that? Number one, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Listen to this. Wherefore, God has highly exalted Christ, that's what it's referring to, and given him a name which is above every name, a title above every other person. Philippians 2, 9. Christ was humiliated, it's described in verses 5 to 8, and out of his humiliation, his death for us, God brought him through resurrection, exalted him, giving him a name above every name, that is, he is the supreme person. And at that name of Jesus, every knee should what? Should bow. Whether in heaven, or in earth, or under the earth, whether holy angels, men, or demons, every knee should bow to the name of Christ. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, for what reason? What's the next phrase? To the glory of God. The reason that we are to be saved, now listen carefully to this. The reason that we are to be saved, the reason we're to embrace Christ, believe in him, is not so much that we may be happy. That's a byproduct. 
The reason we are to come to Christ is not so much that we may avoid hell and enjoy heaven. That's a byproduct. The reason we are to come to Christ and believe in him is that we may give God what? Glory. You say, how does it give God glory? Because it honors God. How does it honor God? Because God said of Jesus Christ, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And when you hear him with believing hearts, you then honor God's word. You see, the reason to become a Christian primarily is in order that you may give glory to God. Every time a person is saved, that adds another voice to the hallelujah chorus. God redeemed you for his own glory, for his own praise, and that's the reason to be redeemed. Henry Martin was a great missionary to India. He wrote in his diary after just the first experience in India, he went to visit a, a shrine, Hindu shrine. And he saw all of the terrible, blasphemous idolatry, and he ran out of that shrine, and he ran away into a private place, and he began to weep, and then he took out his diary, and he wrote down, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is to be so dishonored. You see, for him, evangelizing the Hindus was not so much to get them out of hell as it was to give glory to his worthy Savior. And it is the travesty of all travesties to deny Christ the glory due his name. The blessed Son of God who came into the world, died on a cross, rose again. The absolutely perfect, sinless Son of the living God. When a person does not give him honor, he strikes a blow at God and says, I refuse to glorify your name. I don't care who you are or what you did. That is the sin of sins. And that is why it says in John 16 that the Spirit comes into the world to convict the world of sin because they believe not on me. That's the primary sin by which men are condemned to hell. In fact, if you believe Christ, if you receive Christ and give God glory at that point, every other sin will be what? Forgiven. No sin will be forgiven apart from you glorifying God through faith in his Son and confession of him as your Lord. So where do you start glorifying God? Right there. You will never glorify God at all in your life until you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. There's no other way. No other way. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, uh, we preach for the sake of the name, not for the sake of the sinner, but for the sake of the name. The name of Christ. Third John, we preach for the sake of the name. It's the same thought. So that people might honor God who is so absolutely and utterly worthy. So the first thing in glorifying God is to confess Jesus as Lord, to come in faith to Christ. If you refuse to do that, then you remember the words of Jeremiah who said, I'll cry for you. I will weep for you because you will fall into the darkness and death. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar who refusing to glorify God was turned into a wild beast. You remember the story of Herod who in refusing to glorify God and glorifying rather himself was eaten by worms and died. Those are simply pictures of the devastation that comes into the life of one who refuses to give God glory. He is so worthy. Secondly, we glorify God by aiming our life at that purpose. It's the old story, if you don't aim at the target, you're sure not going to hit it. 
What is the purpose of life? Very simple. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all of the glory of God. That's how you aim your life. You just focus your life on glorifying God. I mean, that's the focus. That's the purpose for which you live. That's the question you ask yourself all the time. Something comes up, you say, will it glorify God? The answer is yes, do it. If the answer is no, don't do it. Will this glorify God? Will this bring honor to God? That's what I ask myself. Years and years ago, I began to train my subconscious mind to say that at any point in time, as I pursue some activity, it's a simple little thing that goes on in my head. Will this glorify God? Will this honor Him? That's a positive approach. Not can I do it and get away with it. Will it honor Him? Will it bring Him glory? Will it bring Him praise? Will it bring Him adoration? Will it exalt His name? That's the question. That's the question that guides life. That's basic. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means you will glorify God. I'll give you several thoughts. That means you will glorify God at any cost. In other words, it doesn't matter what the price is. You'll do it. If your life is really aimed at glorifying God, you will do it no matter what the cost. Let me give you an illustration of that. John 21. And this is the last chapter of John's Gospel right before the book of Acts. And in this particular chapter, Jesus is having an encounter with Peter, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. We all identify with Peter, who was forever and a day saying things before he thought. And sometimes when he said them, they weren't even his own thoughts. They were the thoughts of the other disciples for whom he spoke. But Peter really wanted to, um, he wanted to be faithful to Christ. And so he kept affirming in verses 15 to 17 that he loved Christ. He kept affirming that he had a deep affection for him. And so Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He said, go ahead and serve me if you love me. But then in verse 18, this most interesting portion, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, you put on your own belt and went where you wanted to go. In other words, you did your own thing. When you were young, you called your own shots. You got dressed, put on your belt, and you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch forth your hands. Very interesting Greek phrase. It's used in extra-biblical literature to refer to crucifixion. He's saying to him, when you get old, you're going to get crucified. Somebody else is going to bind you and carry you exactly where you don't want to go. And this he spoke, verse 19 signifying by what death, now look at this phrase, Peter would what? Glorify God. You say, you mean you can glorify God in death? That's right. And then he said to Peter, follow me. Now listen, get the picture. He says, Peter, you love me? Serve me. Now what it's going to cost you, Peter, is your life. And then he says, follow me. Those are the terms of Peter's service. You'll pay with your life. You'll stretch forth your hands. It may be an allusion to crucifixion. It was certainly a very direct statement about binding, being tied up, which meant being chained or imprisoned. Peter, it'll cost you your life. And then he uses this wonderful phrase, the death by which he would glorify God. Say, how can death glorify God? When a person is willing to die to glorify God, whatever the price. Whatever the price. When you realize you're expendable. When you will not compromise. When you will do what is right and live a godly life even if it means your death. Well, that's so remote from us. I mean, we find that so hard to relate to. 
Because here we are in happy-go-lucky America where um, there's very little price for being a Christian. But back up from death a little bit and ask yourself this question. At what point do I stop glorifying God? That's the point at which I sell out. You say, I want to glorify God, I want to glorify God until it's uh, after 11 o'clock on a Friday night and I'm out with my girlfriend. Then I don't want to glorify God. Now, that's the point at which you sell out. That's pretty far short of death, I'd say. I mean, where do you sell out? You say, I want to live to the glory of God. I want my life to glorify Him. Then if you really mean that, that's all the way out to death. And nothing short of that. I mean, I, I just think that's standard stuff in, in terms of Christian commitment. You say, well, I don't know if I can handle that deathbed. Well, if you ever got to that point, I think the Lord would give you the strength. Some of you, in fact, might do better being burned at the stake than you do on Friday night with your girlfriend after 11 o'clock. <laughs> because the Lord would give you strength for that. But you see, God has called us to, to live to his glory even if it means death. There's no stopping point. That's what I'm trying to say. There's no bailout point. I mean, it goes all the way to the end. I mean, it's, it's just so exciting to think about what would happen if everybody here was committed to glorifying Jesus Christ right on out to death. Absolutely revolutionary. Let me give you a second concept in this idea of aiming your life at the glory of the Lord. The second thing is this, that if you do that, you will, be, you will suffer with him. You will suffer with him. What do I mean by that? Well, Psalm 69, 9, and Jesus quotes it in John 2 when he was cleansing the temple, says this. David's speaking, and of course he's speaking of himself and his own attitude and also prophetically of the attitude of the Messiah. And what he said is this. The reproaches that have fallen on you have fallen on me. Zeal for your house is eating me up. The reproaches that have fallen on you are falling on me. In other words, when you are dishonored, I hurt. Do you get that? When you're dishonored, I hurt. Where's your deepest pain? Where's your deepest anxiety? When you get hurt or when God gets hurt? If the answer is when you get hurt, then you know who's number one in your life. Right? If you answer when God is dishonored, that's my deepest pain, then you know who's number one in your life. I mean, the person who lives to the glory of God is so consumed with the glory of God that when God is dishonored, the pain is profound. And that's what Henry Martin was saying. I can't endure existence if Jesus is dishonored. I mean, what, what, what prayer life do you have? Is this your prayer life? Lord, I want this, I want this, I want this. Give me this, give me this, give me this. Is that your prayer life? Or is your prayer life, Lord God, exalt your son. Lord, I see Jesus Christ dishonored. The pain is more than I can bear. I mean, that sounds like a long way from where most people are. But Jesus said, the psalmist too, said that, God, when you are dishonored, I feel the pain. That's living to the glory of God. That's being preoccupied with him, not me. And there's a third element in this. If I aim my life at the glory of God, first of all, I'm going to have to confess Jesus as Lord, and then if I'm going to aim my life at that, I'm going to be willing to give him glory at any cost, all the way out to death. I'm going to be hurting when he is dishonored, 
And by the way, young people, if you check in on your life and you don't sense those kind of things, then you're far short of where you ought to be. The third thing is, I'm content to be outdone by others who do what I do better than I do it. In other words, the issue isn't me. People who live to the glory of God, I'll put it another way, are not spiritually competitive. I mean, I see this even in churches. I see pastors who are so competitive. I remember two, two pastors had a Sunday school contest to see who could have the biggest Sunday school. The one that lost got sick and threw up. He had that much more emotional trauma because some other pastor outdid him. That's sick. And then, you know, somebody always says that when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft. And that's why you have so many problems, you know, in music. And he was the musician of heaven, by the way. But it's kind of curious to me that uh, everybody, well, not everybody, but many people think that they need to sort of be the soloist. This is typical in a church. In fact, one church I know, the pastor got so tired of everybody wanting to sing a solo that he has solo night once a year, and anybody can sing one verse of anything they want. He just parades them all across the platform and gets it all over on one Sunday night. You know, and I, you hear people say, well, she gets all the solos. You know, and I've often thought about that. There are people for whom the biggest issue is their own ability to perform. There are pastors who are very upset and jealous of others who preach better than they do or have more successful ministry. That's a very, very revealing attitude. That says the issue with me is me, not God. When you're aiming your life at the glory of God, you would be content to have somebody do what you do better than you do it as long as God got the glory. You understand that? Look at Philippians chapter 1, and let me illustrate that out of the scripture. Philippians chapter 1, Paul is, of course, incarcerated, prison, and he says, uh, my chains, my imprisonment has fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's a new mission field. You know, you put Paul in prison, and you think how tough that is on Paul, but think how tough that was on the people in the prison. And at the end of the... At the end of the epistle, he says that the Christians in Caesar's household greet you. He was picking them off one by one. But anyway, he says, this has been great. My chains in Christ, verse 13, are manifest in all the palace and in every other place. This is just a new mission field for him. And many Christians are becoming more bold because of my chains. In other words, they're saying, let's go out and preach Christ. And even if we do wind up in prison, prison will be another mission field. Then he says in verse 15, some preach Christ of envy, they envy me, strife, some of goodwill. Some are supportive of my ministry, some are envious and jealous and contentious. Uh, verse 16, he uses the word contention. He says they want to add affliction to my chains. They, they're saying things like, oh, Paul, he's in jail because he blew his ministry. He's in jail because that's where he belongs. He's in jail because the Lord put him on the shelf. Well, you can know something went wrong in his life. God put him there. He's got fouled up somewhere. Typical kind of criticism. And he had been, he was everybody's spiritual father or uncle. Everybody in the Gentile world was a product of this man. When he went into town, they would listen to him all night. A guy fell out of the window one night and died. They raised him from the dead, brought him back up, and finished the sermon. And when he tried to leave the Ephesian elders, they grabbed him, fell on his neck, cried all over his neck, and shed tears because he was going to leave. They loved him. They adored him. He was their spiritual source. And now all of a sudden he's in jail and a new breed of guys are coming along and they're saying all kinds of untrue things about Paul and they're wounding him very deeply. But I love what he says. He says in verse 18, so what? Nevertheless, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and in that I do rejoice and I will rejoice. In other words, he's got this great, huge 
commitment to the glory of God and what he says is I don't care who the human instrument is I don't care whether I get the, the, the glory or whether I get the chains I don't care whether I get the honor or whether I get the, the contentious striving jealous attitudes the issue with me is Christ is preached and in that I'll what? I'll rejoice poor person who lives to the glory of God when you show me a person who is content to be outdone in what they do best by someone else as long as God is glorified that's a sign of great spiritual commitment. Now, what does it mean to aim your life at the glory of God? It means, first of all, to confess Jesus as your Lord. Secondly, to aim your whole entire life at that to the point where you are faithful to death, to the point where you suffer the pain that comes to God, and you're content to be outdone by anyone as long as he gets the glory. Let me give you a third thought in terms of the three. The first is confessing Christ as Lord. The second the idea of aiming your life at it, and I gave you three subpoints. The third one is we glorify God by confessing sin. We glorify God by confessing sin. Let me give you a, a good illustration of this biblically. is in Joshua 7, and I, I just would uh, share that one verse. You know the story of Achan who stole things out of the city of Jericho when he was told not to do that. Joshua said to Achan, after he was discovered, to be sinful and disobedient, My son, give I pray thee, he says, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. Confess your sin and give glory to God. Then what did God do to him? What did God do to Achan and his whole family? Had him killed, right? say, well, what's the point? If he's going to kill him anyway, why bother to give God glory? Listen very carefully to what I say. The reason you give God glory is in admitting your sin, in acknowledging your sin, in affirming your sin to God. Listen now, you're saying, God, you see my sin and you have every right to punish it. Confession of sin frees God up to punish us or chasten us without being thought to be unjust. Now, that's maybe a new thought for you. We, we think we're to confess our sin to get it forgiven, and that's part of it. But God may chasten us anyway. Even forgiveness does not dispel chastening. But the point that I want you to see is, when we confess our sin, then we admit that we have sinned, we admit we are worthy of chastening, and when God does it, then he is free from being accused of being unjust. That's how you glorify God in that. Achan, you acknowledge your sin and you glorify God. You accept the responsibility so that when your life is taken and the lives of those who were your accomplices, no one is going to say God is unfair because you will have publicly acknowledged your worthiness to be judged. I think the most dramatic illustration of this principle is found in... An absolutely incredible story of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5. I want you to turn to it. It really starts back in chapter 4, but I want to pick it up in chapters 5 and 6 very briefly, but this is so powerful. And what you have to know is this. The Philistines and the Israelites are at war, right? The Philistines and the Israelites are having this war, which is nothing new. They did it all the time. And the, the people were on, on, the, on the Israel side were very, very concerned because they, they were outmanned, outnumbered, and basically outpowered. 
And so somebody says in chapter 4, verse 3, somebody's got to go get the Ark of the Covenant. Go get the Ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a box. Just a box. Box with a, some angels on the top, with their little wings going over like this. Inside the box were a few very important things from the history of Israel. But the box represented the presence of whom? Of God. So basically, the box uh, wasn't there. It was in Shiloh. So the people said, go get the box. We want God. We've got a war here. The Philistines are very powerful. Go get God. They're acting like they're pagans, like their God is confined to a box. So they went up and got the box. What happened? The people, it says in verse 5, the box, the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp and everybody shouted with a shout so that the whole earth rang. Hey! You can imagine thousands upon thousands of people screaming that the box had arrived. And when the Philistines heard the noise, they said, What does this mean in the camp of the Hebrews? Verse 6. And they understood the Ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. The Philistines were afraid and they said, God has come unto the camp. Now we are in trouble. Woe unto us. Woe unto us, verse 8. Who will deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with the plagues of the wilderness. Da -da -da -da, you know. And so the battle ensued. And you know what happened? You know what happened? The Philistines stole the box. That's right. They picked up the box and took it. And you know what? They won. And 30,000 Israeli footmen were slaughtered. The ark of God was taken... And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And that was an improvement. They took the box. And Israel is standing there saying, wait a minute. This was, this was our God. How could he have failed us? So they had a problem because they no longer had the Ark of the Covenant. But if you think they had a problem, imagine the problem that the Philistines had because now they had God on their hands. And so, you know, they took the chapter 5. Let's pick it up there. They took the ark of God. And they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They took it, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, they worshipped a god named Dagon who had a fish head and a human body. It's a reverse mermaid. Fish man. And this god Dagon was the god they worshipped. And so they put this, this box, which to them was the idol of the God of Israel, next to the, their own God, their own deity. And so the people in Ashdod got up the next day, and behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the earth, bowing before the ark of the Lord. What? How did that happen? Must have been a very localized earthquake. So they took Dagon and stuck him back up where he belonged. The next morning they came back. Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold, and only the stump was left. This time he's dumped over and his head's whacked off and his hands are whacked off and there's a stump sitting there. And you know what it says in verse 5? Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. You want to know why? Who wants to worship a loser? Right? Who wants to worship a god who, who can't handle this little box? Nobody bothered to worship Dagon anymore. But they still have a problem because they still have the presence of God represented there. So the hand of the Lord was heavy on them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them. And the account tells us that what happened was there was a plague of mice or rats that came in, like a bubonic plague. 
and others were smitten with tumors, some kind of tumors. Everybody in Ashdod then was victimized by the plagues of the tumors. And the men of Ashdod saw that was said, this is what they said. So this was done, they said, the ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us. That's good thinking. Get that thing out of here. For his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. And so they said, uh, gather all the lords of the Philistines. They said, what are we going to do with this? They said, well, let's take it to Gath. Do you remember a big man from Gath? His name was what? Goliath. Let's take it up to Gath. So here they come to Gath with the ark, and everybody in Gath says, whoa, we don't want that thing. Because what happens is the hand of the Lord is heavy against them. He smote the men of the city, small and great, and they had tumors in their secret parts. Now, that's the old King James, and people have made all kinds of weird conclusions about that. Some have concluded it was hemorrhoids. It wasn't. <laughs> tumors in their secret parts. Internal tumors. Internal. So the Gathites said, get that thing out of here, and they sent it to Ekron. And the Ekronites said, whoa, and it's just going right up the coast. So one city after another. And they said, they brought that thing to us to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel, let it go again to its own place that it slay us not and our people, for there's a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God is heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten, died not from the plague, were smitten with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Everybody screaming and crying for mercy. They're dying all over the place. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, chapter 6. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, what are we going to do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall do to send it back to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, watch this, send it not empty. Don't send it back the way you got it. But send back a trespass offering. Now, did you get that? Now, if you were to offer a trespass offering, that would mean you admitted that you had what? What? Sin. Now, get this. These are pagans. And they are smart enough to say, if we want to be delivered from all this plague, we're going to have to acknowledge that we have what? Sinned against this God. And that what he has done to us, he had every right to do because we sinned. That's pretty good thinking for pagans. And then we'll be healed. So verse 4, what shall be the trespass offering that we return? Look at this. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. They didn't know how to make a right trespass offering. They hadn't read Leviticus. So what are they going to send? Five golden tumors and five golden mice. Well, those were what was called votive offerings in ancient times. I was in the um, little secret chamber at Corinth where they had a lot of uh, worship the god Escalapius, who was the god of healing. And when people came into the god of Escalapius and they wanted to honor this god and they wanted to, to be healed, they would bring in a clay replica of their diseased body. There are fingers and legs and heels and internal organs and, and ears and noses and just masses of them in this little chamber there to this very day. These people came in and to appease Escalapius, they brought a clay image of their diseased portion to admit to Escalapius that they were saying, we want to honor you, we admit our sin, we know why we're sick, please deliver us. That was a votive offering, that's what they called it. 
So verse 5, Wherefore you shall make your images of your tumors and the images of your mice that mar the land. Now watch this. And you shall give what? Glory to the God of Israel. You admit your sin, you give glory to God. What does James say? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am what? Tempted by God. God tempts no man to evil. Another way to say that is God is not responsible for your, what? Sin. And God has every right to chasten that sin. So when we confess our sin, we are saying, Lord God, you are free to chasten me, and I would never accuse you of being unjust, for I have sinned and I deserve it. You give glory to God when you confess your sin. And you acknowledge that God has every right, whether he chooses to do it or not, to chasten you. The pagans knew that. God is honored when we admit our sin. Can I give you one more? You glorify God with praise. You glorify God with praise. Psalm 50, verse 23 says, Whosoever offers praise glorifies me. Whosoever offers praise glorifies me. Isn't that a simple thing? Now, what is praise? Now, if I said to all of you, let's all praise the Lord, what would you do? Praise the Lord. Let's go. Praise the Lord, everybody. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise, 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 praise. Well, what is it? Say, well, it's, it's praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Whatever. What is it? Let me tell you what it is. Praise is, number one, reciting God's attributes. Reciting his attributes. God, you're holy, just, good, mighty. Faithful, true. That's praise. It's reciting God's attributes. Secondly, it's reciting God's works. God, you're the God that one day stepped, on the, uh, stepped out on the edge of nothing and said, nothing, you is now something. You created everything. You made everything in the world. You are the God who has done mighty deeds. You created the world in six days. You divided the Red Sea. You restored your people, Israel, back to their land. God, you're the God that makes axe head float. You're the God that raises people from the dead. God, you've done so many mighty works, the mightiest of which you sent your son to the cross to die. You raised him from the dead. You are a mighty God. Praise is reciting God's attributes, reciting God's works. And number three, saying thanks for both. And praise is such a healthy thing. Praise is such a healthy thing. I mean, if you can learn to praise, boy, you can learn to glorify God and the residual effect is probably change your life. Let me give you an illustration. Let's just learn to cultivate praise. For example, you say, God, uh, you're the absolute creator of the whole universe. God, you are infinite. God, there is no limit to your person. There is no limit to your power. God, you're more powerful than a million billion blazing suns. God, you know everything. God, you're everywhere at the same time. Your presence is that which is able to perceive all that exists. 
God, you are the perfect one. You are the sinless one. You are holy and righteous and just and good and pure. You are merciful. Oh, God, you are wise. And on and on you go, what a God we have. And then you say, and God, you're the God who did miracle after miracle after miracle. You're the God who can overturn the kingdom of darkness. You're the God who controls history. You're the God who puts up nations and takes them down, lifts up rulers and puts them down. You're the God who controls the rising of the sun and the setting of the same. You do it all, God, and God, by the way, I, I have a quiz tomorrow. I mean, do you think you could help me? See, I mean, we, we, for the most part, we live in this little puny perception, don't we? And if we ever would learn to praise God and expand our comprehension of who he is, it would give us a whole different view of everything that happens in our life. If you would spend most of your time praising, you would probably have to spend less of your time petitioning. Because you wouldn't be asking for things you already have. Lord, please give me strength. Well, you already have strength enough. You can do all things through what? Christ through... Don't ask for stuff you have. Just praise God for having it. You say, I need more love. Please give me more love. The love of God is what? Shed abroad in your heart. How much more could you possibly want? I need peace. I'm so troubled. We have, says Paul, peace with God. And the peace of God rules our hearts. Oh. You know what you ought to be asking for? Wisdom. You say, what's that? That's the sense to know what you have and not ask for it. If we learn how to be thankful for who God is, for what he's done for us, then we're going to shorten up our petition list and elevate our praise, right? Well, I only had eight more points, but I'll save them for another time. Let's pray.